Yo. Technology. What is it all about? Before I became a journalist, I was one of them. A tech bro. It was 1999, and I'd just graduated with a relatively useless degree in Spanish and political science. I had no idea what I wanted to do. But I kept reading these stories about 22-year-old millionaires at some random startup in San Francisco. It was the height of the first dot-com boom. It all sounded so easy. So I moved to the city with a couple of friends of mine and promptly got an entry-level job at a dot-com. Phase one complete. I had visions of living large and very soon, once my stock options vested. My employer's claim to fame was that it was the world's largest paper greeting card store, as if the world needed one of those. It had raised millions of dollars from top venture capitalists and had all the cool startup stuff you might expect. The headquarters was a big warehouse with rows and rows of racks stuffed with catalog cards. We played lots of table football. If you were tired, you could take a nap in the beanbag room. Yeah, we had a beanbag room. The CTO had a man bun before man buns were a thing. I wore shorts to work most days. Everybody was young. I kept thinking, is this what the real world is really like? Turns out, it wasn't. From the moment it opened, Wall Street witnessed a freefall dive evolution and the rise and fall of the internet stock bubble. Suddenly companies all around us started shutting down. Venture capitalists closed their wallets. It was amazing. It's like there was a great collective coming to after a wild party. It became very clear very quickly that our company was never going to raise money again. They began to slash costs. As one of the most recent hires, I was one of the first pushed out the door. My career as a business development executive at a highflying.com lasted all of four glorious months. I didn't do much work, but it was really fun. A few months and terrible temp jobs later, I went along to what they had started calling pink slip parties. So many people were getting fired that people started throwing random parties at bars around San Francisco where people could go get together, drink, commiserate, and maybe, just maybe, hear about a friend of a friend of a friend who knew of a job somewhere. And that's where I was told about an opening at a little trade magazine. I spent the next two years covering the implosion of an industry that had first lured me to this city. I eventually finagled my way very circuitously to London, where I spent 13 years working as a journalist before coming back to the city that is, once again, in the grip of a very big boom. Everywhere you turn, you find a company that is pledging to change the world. And some of them will, but most won't. Buried somewhere in a box in my parents' garage, I still have a contract that lists out how many stock options my first employer had granted me. My fortune, unrealized. I may go dig it out. helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. 
So today I'll be talking with Saman Farid, who's the founder of Comet Labs, which is a investment firm slash incubator that invests strictly in robots. I first came across Saman when I was working on another story about the future of work and how mass automation was going to put us all out of a job. It turns out that's not strictly true, uh, but I found uh, Saman's perspective really interesting and thoughtful and thought this would be a good place to start the podcast. The way that we think about robotics is that it's just another application of artificial intelligence. So robotics has been around for the past you know, 50 years, 100 years, there's different forms of automation. But as computers get better at understanding the real world, at making decisions, at gathering data, uh, robotics is getting much, much smarter than it previously has been. So maybe the kinds of robotics that we're talking about uh, and are really excited about are a bit different than what's been seen in the past, but um, we generally use the term intelligent machines more than uh, robotics because uh, robotics gives people this impression of like a humanoid walking around. But really, like, you know, we think of the, these these gates that open and close at the parking lot as a type of intelligent machine, right? Over time, they get smarter. A smart vending machine could be a form of robotics that is very different than what we maybe associate with the word. But I was just looking on your uh, on some of the companies you've invested in, and I know some of them are still, so we won't talk about them by name, but they're doing some quite amazing things like uh, harvesting for agriculture, picking apples, that kind of thing, making gourmet burgers, vacuuming hotel rooms. How close are these type of things getting to where we're going to see them in our everyday lives? In other words, when is the robot uprising and should we be worried? (laughs) I think we should strive to be friends with the robots (laughs) when the uprising happens. That's our plan. So I think when for us to, as, as consumers, see them in our everyday lives at a really massive scale is probably a pretty long ways away. Uh, the reason that I think of it is that as consumers, we're faced with these environments that are constantly changing. Our expectations are pretty high. We want everything that we interact with to be pretty seamless. Uh, we want it to really be able to understand our intention, even though there's a lot of ambiguity in our intention most of the time. So it really has to have a really clear model of the world and our context. But I think in an industrial or commercial setting, we think that there's much, much more opportunity for robotics companies. So whether it's apple picking or hotel rooms or restaurants or construction sites or retail stores, a lot of these environments are much more clearly defined in terms of what the context is, what the use case is. Uh, if you're talking about a bolt in a, in a, in a construction site, it's most likely a, a piece of equipment, and it's not likely to be a lightning bolt. <laughs> but, you know, so it, it really depends on, on the context. And so the more the robotics or the AI systems can know about the context that they're in and build a specific model for that context, the, the better they can perform. And so in a lot of the uh, more defined use cases, we think that you know, we're already seeing uh, very uh, large-scale commercial deployments of artificial intelligence systems and uh, robotic systems. So before we go any further, what is artificial intelligence? Because it's one of these buzzwords, especially in Silicon Valley. Everybody's <laughs> investing in it. Absolutely. What does it mean? The way I would define artificial intelligence is the ability of technology or computers to understand the physical world better and then make decisions around that uh, understanding. So is that a set of rules, a kind of if mm. statements? Or Definitely is, not, is yeah. it, are we getting to the point where it, for lack of a better word, the the machines are thinking or have intuition? I think it's somewhere in the middle uh, of those two extremes. So it's no longer, you know, what what this whole new wave of technology is is definitely not rule-based. 
Um, we definitely don't program the computers to say, if you see this, then it's that. Um, because we found that that's not feasible. You know, in the case of computer vision, we used to try to program a cat by, you know, telling it, if you see, you know, whiskers and you see, you know, feet, then it's probably a cat. But that doesn't really work if, you know, lighting is low or the cat is turned on its side or upside down or, you know, sitting in, in some grass. Like, you, all of a sudden, the computer gets lost and, and can't follow those rules. So... With the advancement of deep learning, like a few years ago, we've started to see experience-based systems where you, we show it hundreds of thousands of pictures of cats, uh, and over time it starts to develop a way to interpret and recognize those cats by itself. So it's still not intuition, but it's definitely not rule-based. And over time, I think it's getting better and better at dealing with those ambiguities. And is the idea that now that there's so much data out there that it is much easier to train quote-unquote, mm -hmm. train these machines to actually get smarter quite quickly in a way that they couldn't before. Absolutely. I think it's the confluence of a few uh, simultaneous uh, changes that have happened. So one of them is drastic amount of increase in the data that's available. So there's more and more sensors throughout the world. There's more and more cameras. There's more and more images. That's, you know, step one is that we have this new massive reserve of data. The second one, of course, is computing power is dropped. So especially parallel computing power. What's like, parallel computing power? So... A lot of these models have hundreds of thousands of nodes that need to be trained in parallel. And traditionally, we used to rely on CPUs to do most of our computing. But we found with neural networks, uh, GPUs, which are graphics processing units, which were originally designed to generate pictures on your screen for video games and things like that, we found that they're actually very adept at processing lots and lots of small uh, computations uh, in parallel. Uh, what used to be used to kind of generate the pixels on your screen, that same technology is now used to generate all of the different nodes in a large neural network. So we've seen the cost of that drop a lot over the last few years. Like how dramatically? Um, so probably by you know a couple of orders of magnitude, maybe one or two orders of magnitude. It's not only just the the cost of the hardware, but it's also like the power consumption that it takes and all of the surrounding infrastructures like networking that you need to kind of feed that and, and keep it producing basically. So I think that's the second really big change. And then the third one is the, the cost of storage has also dropped a lot. So with um, Amazon Web Services and things like that, you know, people are now able to store more and more of their data in the cloud, which makes it much more accessible for training. So I think these things uh, have all happened in parallel. And all of a sudden now, uh, these, these researchers who have been working on neural networks for actually a pretty long time are basically armed with a whole new uh, arsenal of technology that they can use. So is it a way, in layman's terms, is it accurate to think of it as, say, algorithms are students, mm -hmm. but they just didn't have any school to go to because it's too expensive, it was inaccessible, etc. And now you have tons of data, it's really easy to access, and it's really cheap to store lots of it. Mm -hmm. So now they can all go to class and get smart. Pretty much. I think that's the simplified version of it, definitely. <laughs> Very <laughs> simplified. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but I, I think also, like, the students have gotten smarter, right? Like, that's part of the, with, with the processing power getting better. Right. And, of course, at the same time, there's lots and lots of research, research that's happening that are giving us new ways to teach the students. So new algorithms uh, and new methods to train these neural networks. Um, and so basically the curriculum of the teachers is also getting better and better over time. Right. So, yeah. so for now, we just take a step back away from the theoretical to what's happening in the real world, we can talk, for example, about agriculture. So one of your the companies you're looking at, or have invested in, rather, picks apples. So just to give a little context on this company first, so, you know, they're, this is one of many companies that we've invested in that... They're in stealth uh, now. They're in right. stealth, so unfortunately I can't uh, disclose the secret, name. Very top secret, top secret. Yes. <laughs> but they are uh, building a system, right, that 
um, automates some parts of the harvesting process, and they can do it for about a third of the cost of you know the current human labor that is possible for that task. But I mean, that's really not. Uh, giving you a full description of the story because what's really exciting is that you know traditionally humans would pick apples and then put them in a barrel and that's kind of the end of the day. Um, but with this new system, actually, what we can do is as we're picking the apples, we can sort the apples um, into like you know different grades, um, which allows the farmer to sell them for a higher price. It also is constantly observing you know the air moisture, the ground moisture, the temperature, the sun exposure onto every single crop that that, that it goes in front of. And over time, it generates these models that say, you know, in these conditions, the apples grow best and most sweet and most large and most red. And in these other conditions, they're not as good. And so it allows us to make the entire farm get uh, better and more efficient at growing crops. But to address the labor question, one of the big issues is that a lot of these farms actually have a very hard time hiring labor to, to do these tasks. So um, it's not that you know the, the people are getting replaced. It's that the people just don't want to do these these types of very repetitive jobs. And picking an apple is exactly the same today as it was 50 years ago. You carry a sack and a ladder and you just pick them. And that is you know just really inefficient um, at the large scale. So the people can actually focus on doing more high-value tasks like observing the, the farm, the surroundings, choosing what kinds of crops to grow, and also grading the apples. There's a lot of subjectivity to figuring out you know which types of apples we want, and they can train the robotic systems. So that's one part of it. It's, it's, these are jobs that already we have very hard time filling. In fact, most farms right now are set up to produce one type of crop or they time their harvests at very specific times of year because that's when they're able to hire labor. But realistically, that's not necessarily the best for the farm. It's not best for the ecology or the environment. So their labor model is, or sorry, their model of operation is dependent in a way on, on labor availability. Absolutely. So they choose the species of apples that they grow or other other crops to fit with when they can bring in labor and to try to compress it all so that when they hire labor, it's just all at once and then and then you don't need them anymore or to balance it with their neighbors and things like that. But realistically, uh, if we took away this bottleneck of harvesting, all of a sudden farms could pick you know very diverse crop types because you could pick them at any time of year. Um, you could also uh, mix different types of crops onto the same farm. And there's a lot of interesting things that you can do to rethink the way the farm is built. And this is what we're seeing in a lot of industries is that once we use uh, technology to replace the existing bottlenecks, we completely rethink the way that these industries were, were set up to start with. So, you know, warehousing is a really good example of that. Is As Amazon figured out, you know, that, that using this Kiva robots that they have, they can actually do, do picking and placing a lot more effectively. They started to redesign their warehouses around the robots. And um, more and more we're seeing examples of that where the humans can actually really focus on the tasks that they're really good at. They can become assistants, basically, to management to really design the way that the robots are are used, the layout of the store, uh, the layout of the warehouse. And it also allows much less centralization. So when in the past, because of labor costs, people would put all their warehouses in Kansas or something, um, now... uh, because the cost of labor is lower in these new warehouses, we can actually have more warehouses that are smaller that are spread throughout the country. And this uh, actually kind of helps balance a lot of the employment issues. It helps to create more consistency in deliveries. It increases the overall quality of the product that you know Amazon or any warehouse is, is offering. What we're expecting is not just replacement of humans. It's actually rethinking the way that these traditional systems have been built. Can we talk about self-driving cars? Sure, absolutely, yeah. How close are we? I think at this point, it's more of a regulatory hurdle than a technology hurdle. 
So I does think, the technology exist now? Realistically, it's much harder to do autonomous driving in a city where there's human drivers. If, for example, we said, you know, San Francisco tomorrow is going to be only autonomous cars, um, we could do it probably tomorrow. We would design special lanes for the autonomous cars. We'd have vehicle-to-infrastructure communication systems. We'd have vehicle-to-vehicle communication systems. And actually then the difficulty of having these really complicated perception systems would be drastically reduced. Realistically, that's not going to happen, at least not in the U.S. I think there are cities in China that are talking about that already. There are cities talking about what in China? Basically outlying human-driven cars. Talking about it, they're doing it. They're not doing it. They're talking about it. Wow. China is one of the places where if they wanted to do it, you know, it would take them a couple of weeks to <laughs> transform the whole city. Well, just can uh, we stop there? Because sure. I think it's important to cause just talk a little bit about your background and sure. Comet and how you ended up starting this, because starting this, uh, it has its roots in China, doesn't it? In some ways, yeah. Um, so I uh, started a company out in China a couple of years ago and uh, eventually ended up selling it. And uh, once I sold it, I was kind of thinking about what to do next. And I was talking to a lot of startups. A lot of them were building kind of these very early saplings of AI technology. And one of the investors in my old company was this large uh, group called Legend, which is the parent company of Lenovo. Uh, They're also a very large um, investor in lots of different kinds of technologies and traditional industries. And they asked me to join their team to look at kind of early stage technologies, especially artificial intelligence. And over time, I got more and more enamored by what's possible with artificial intelligence. And I also started to see that, yes, of course, this is a worldwide phenomenon. And that's why I came to the States and came to San Francisco to look at more of these technologies. But I also started to recognize that a lot of the first opportunities for this type of technology to be uh, adopted is in places where the market is changing very dynamically and very rapidly. And that's something where China actually plays a a strength traditionally, right? Because a lot of these uh, existing industries are being redesigned from scratch, or have only been around for a few years, uh, it's much more likely for them to adopt technology at a wide scale. Whereas here in the U.S., um, and I think in many developed countries, because the established companies have been around for a long time, the service quality is very high, they've optimized around a lot of other factors, it's much harder for them to step out of that existing kind of mindset and rethink the way the technology is built. So we partnered with Legend, we partnered with Baidu, as well as a bunch of companies here in the U.S., and we spun out this thing called Comet Labs, which is a mix between an incubator, an investment fund, and like a university research lab. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, we have entrepreneurs that are working on new problems every day. We have a a fund that we can use to invest in them and allow them to grow quickly. And how big is that fund? Uh, It's about $50 million. So we were investing in very early stage companies. And then we also have uh, a lot of what we call entrepreneurs in residence or engineers in residence, who are people who have not yet formed companies, but who are we think, you know, very well suited to, to build something with these new technology tools that are available. So we partner with lots and lots of corporates, and the corporates talk about the needs that they have and the things that they think could be solved. And we basically give these entrepreneurs a, a huge long list of interesting commercial opportunities and help them ideate on what are the meaningful bottlenecks that exist in industry that is worth tackling with um, these new AI tools. And so going back, circling back to self-driving, is that the one that is potentially most disruptive or disrupted by AI robots, et cetera? Definitely not. Definitely not. Definitely not. I think that the largest uh, opportunities for AI and robotics to be applied is in things that we haven't really heard a lot about yet in the media, which are very traditional industries. So agriculture is uh, one example, but... I think every industry that looks pretty much the same as it did 50 years ago is going to be drastically changed. So things like construction, I think there's a huge opportunity. Productivity in a construction site has gone down 
steadily over the last <laughs> 30 years, you know. And why is that? And I think that, you know, a big part of it is is the cost of labor has gone up across the world, but especially in developed countries. But also I think that the complexity of our expectations in, in buildings has gotten a lot higher. And uh, of course, you know, as we become more stringent on safety, as we should be, the added cost for construction becomes higher and higher. So what, think, what, how, what parts of a construction would be able to be easily automated? So I don't think automated is the right word. Augmented is, is more, more like it. So I think if you think about the design process for a construction site, from day one, right now, construction sites are generally designed you know, by our, a, a client comes to an architecture firm with some idea and a site, and the architecture firm maybe comes up with a few, or you know, in the best case scenario, a few architecture firms compete with a few designs, but you end up with one design that then goes into the final approval process and gets built. That generally is is optimized around very few factors. Typically, it's just what the client likes uh, is is really the main factor. And like maybe there's some safety considerations. But if we use artificial intelligence in that process, one, we can in minutes maybe generate hundreds of thousands of designs that could be used on this site. Second, we could test each of those designs across thousands of factors. For example, what should the ratio of commercial space to residential space be? What should the wind factor be? What should the outside be? What should the inside be? Um, how would that affect the lighting environment nearby? How would that affect the cost of the environmental footprint? We can evaluate over you know, hundreds of thousands of different factors all in parallel and come up with a much more optimized result in terms of our design. It can also, in parallel, figure out, you know, for example, what are the real-time costs of every material that might go into this building? It has, has concrete prices gone down, or do we expect it to go down in the next couple of years? Do we expect this cost of steel to go up? Do we expect the cost of wood or glass? And around those things, you can kind of change the way that the design of the building is to optimize for those factors. Those are things that are currently just impossible for any human architect to do. So that's just phase one, right? And then phase two is you go from this conceptual design into building architectural drawings, and then from architectural drawings, you generate construction drawings. So whether it's electrical schematics or, you know, you know every phase of this is, is broken down from timeline perspective. And what happens a lot of the time during this process is it's a constant bargaining process, right? It's, okay, you know, if we move this one thing, it'll cost this much. If we change it here, it'll be that much. If we have it exposed, it'll be like this. If we hide it, it'll be like that. Um, all of that can can be you know done much much more efficiently by by computers, and then um, the actual construction process finally begins, right? And the procurement process is is time consuming and slow. Whereas if we knew in advance what we were trying to build, we could time all of the orders to come in at exactly when we need them, which is not at all what it is right now. It just sits somewhere. We can have all of the labor efficiently managed to be in the right place at the right time. We could ensure that as the construction process is happening we're kept up to date and that it's accurate. This is a big problem. Something like 30 to 40% at, at least of the cost of a construction site is, is wasted time or, or, or materials. We build things, figure out that we missed a pipe somewhere and tear it down and rebuild it. One part of the process gets held up and the next part of the process has to wait around for a few weeks before they can actually start work. So that you're paying for labor that is not really productive at the time. So as we get better at modeling all of this and simulating all of the possible scenarios and all of the risk factors, uh, including things like weather, including things like environmental factors, including things like events and like, I mean, there's no limit kind of to the types of data you can input into this one process. And this is just for one building, right? And then the actual construction process begins and even still, you can have drones or robots going and scanning every single night or every day the progress of every piece, correlating them to existing drawings, telling you if you've missed something. And then also the cranes, the, the tools, all of these things, you know, we're seeing already one of the companies we invest in is called Shaper Tools, which uses computer vision algorithms to do very 100% accurate 
crafts you know every single time so if you're cutting a piece of wood for example it'll make sure that you're cutting it 100 accurate every single time that's just not the case right now right we constantly make mistakes um, it's a guy eyeballing it yeah it's a guy eyeballing it maybe with a ruler in the best case scenario right. especially on the construction site it's very difficult right you, to have all of the materials that you need on time but so this isn't uh, a robot that's kind of anatomized to look like a human banging nails into wood not at all this could take the form of goggles that a construction worker wears and tells you if you're in and out of place it could take the form of just sensors that go in your existing drill or whatever and just shut off if you're if you're off the mark <laughs> or whatever it could you know there's a lot of different ways that you could do it but essentially making that entire process much more efficient and then let alone you know after that there's the whole leasing process which is a, again a very inefficient broken process the decoration process is right now Again, either it's it's totally standardized, which doesn't fit the needs of all of the tenants, or it is completely left up to the tenant, which is another huge time cost and, and wasted uh, energy cost for everybody to build. Whereas you could, for example, in, in advance predict, oh, I might have you know a newspaper in floor 13, so I'm probably going to try to design it around potential things that they might want. So anyway, this is just one example of one industry, which is probably you know much larger than the transportation industry uh, if you look at it as a, at an overall scale especially in developing countries and um, hasn't really moved and forward meaningfully yeah it looks exactly the same kind of a construction site just looks like a construction site did 50 years ago except with new rules and regulations to keep people safe this becomes a huge hurdle especially for developing countries you know as we saw the construction boom in China but as hopefully we'll see in more and more countries around the world as the quality of living goes up for everybody, we have to build housing, we have to build commercial real estate that fits the needs of, of the people. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Some of the companies that you've invested in are backing are things like Madebot, which vacuums hotel rooms effectively. Yes, that's kind of the V1 of the product. V1, <laughs> V1. Yeah. And then you're also um, invested in a place to make, they've created a robot to create beautiful hamburgers. The, yes, there's, there's one like that. Outside looking in, you're like, oh, okay, this is a gimmick. <laughs> this isn't yeah. that meaningful. For sure. Yeah. But if you say, for example, the burger bot, how potentially impactful is that? If, if they can get it right and roll it out and this becomes an accepted technology, I mean, I don't know how many ha McDonald's there are in the world or yeah. in and out burgers or what have you. You know, there's a few factors that go into like our decision-making process around these companies. But 
uh, if we're talking about whether or not they're meaningful, I think we have to step back again a little bit, similar to this construction example, and say, okay, like, is a more efficient tool really going to play a huge part in the construction site of the future? And if we look at the current construction site and say, can we use this immediately? The answer is probably no. Um, but if we think about what would, uh, if we redesign the construction site, what would this look like? I think the answer is generally uh, that we would need something like this. And so for the restaurants and hospitality, it's the same type of idea. Right now, restaurants are designed around this idea that you go there at a certain type of day, you buy a certain type of you know, food, uh, you wait a certain number of minutes for it to come, and then you maybe eat it there, you take it out. All of these things are built around a certain set of assumptions. And if we rethink those assumptions and we say, okay, what if, you know, food was delivered by drones. <laughs> I mean, this is maybe a bit too much in the future, but what if we could buy our food at every gas station? What if, you know, we could buy food at, at airports? What if we could buy food in, in our car? You know, like, I, I think if we really try to rethink some of the assumptions that go into it, a lot of them do sound gimmicky for now, but they have the potential to completely be, be radically transformed. I mean, you, you mentioned autonomous cars. Once we have autonomous cars, what do we do when we're in the car all day, right? Like, do you have a doctor's office in the car? Do you have a restaurant in your car? Like, do you have some cars that have restaurants in them? I don't know, right? And, and maybe it sounds very much like science fiction, but that's kind of our job is to start building the future, right? And so every day we sit around thinking about what's the potential path to getting to these new places. So Madebot, you know, the way that they're working in, in hotel rooms is they're, they're, they're basically... And are they effectively a vacuum, just a smart vacuum? They are I mean, essentially, for, you know, the first version is a smart vacuum that uh, the housekeeping staff carries with them, and it in, it makes the the cleaning process much more efficient and much more much much quicker. Also, a lot of the the so how does it work? They go so it's you know it's two o'clock and the maids are going down a corridor, yes. cleaning each room. Yeah, they open the door. They just exactly yeah. So put it down and it just off it goes. Absolutely yeah. So the they put in a room number and then it goes off. So. One of the reasons this came up actually originally was that uh, a lot of um, housekeeping staff actually have issues, you know, with their back or, you know, because they're lifting and, and putting down these heavy vacuum cleaners every day. Um, there's a lot of worker compensation, like lawsuits and things that, are, that come up for, for hotel chains. And it's really very difficult on, on housekeeping staff to do this over and over again every single day. So the first idea was, you know, how can we make their lives a little bit easier? So that was where this, this came from. But uh, over time, as the robot goes through and, and scans every room and, and cleans every room, it actually can start observing the behavior of uh, the guests, right? Something that we previously didn't know that much about. But, you know, what does the wear and tear look like on the different things in the room? Is the, is the chair kind of a little bit broken? Do we need to get it fixed? What's so the, you know the that if there's a rock band coming through and they trashed it last time, <laughs> then maybe they shouldn't. Well, at least, at least the hotel knows to, you know, go and fix it, right? <laughs> um, or it joins the rock band and yeah. it's robot music. But <laughs> it has tentacles into kind of helping us with, with understanding the situation a little bit better. So it, with the burger bot, it's similar. I think the cost of labor is generally so high right now in a lot of restaurants that they have to skimp on the quality of ingredients, basically, to be able to be cost competitive. So if we can uh, have robotics do a lot of the rote tasks, which, again, are very difficult to hire for right now, um, then it becomes a lot easier for uh, the restaurant to, uh, one, produce higher quality food every single time, and two, also be able to redesign the entire experience because it's, for example, in a sealed container or it's not, you know there's no human labor that's needed, then the robotics uh, you know can can be put into uh, gas stations, airports, things like that, and or, or in place in much smaller spaces. You can just drop it in needed. wherever. Exactly, yeah. Um, it can also be timed because the machine is making all of the food. You know exactly when things are coming out, so you can plan how to, your, your serving process uh, around that as well. So, 
unfortunately, I can't disclose too much more about the burger, but as they produce and, and launch what they're, what, they're, what they're doing, I think we'll start to see a lot of really exciting examples of, of how it rethinks the entire dining experience. Well, that's what I think is interesting about a lot of this is, you know, the second and third order consequences of, okay, so a human needs to make my burger and now a robot does. Mm-hmm. But then all of those other follow-on consequences about what does a restaurant look like in the future then? What are all those people who were making burgers? What do they do now? Do you think from where you sit, we're on the cusp of some quite fundamental societal changes in, as you say, if we have to rethink all of the assumptions of all these different industries, we're looking at some quite dramatic changes, no? Absolutely, yeah. We often think that it's like the low-cost labor that's going to be affected the most, but I don't think that's necessarily true. I think actually a lot of the kind of white-collar well, so this was my question. What was going to be my next question yeah. is, it seems like a lot of the stuff we're talking about, at least for now, is is quite rote chores or tasks. Mm-hmm. How close are we to that kind of going that next rung up where you actually have, you know, accountants and I don't know, lawyers or maybe even doctors, who knows, but this kind of, these tr- these more skilled jobs getting where robots are starting to kind of go into those fields as well in a meaningful way. Yeah. The reason that we're seeing most of these being used in, in kind of these rote tasks right now is because the strengths of artificial intelligence are uh, have been overshadowed by its weaknesses. So the strength of, of artificial intelligence is that it can take in large amounts of data uh, and, and process it in parallel and learn very quickly. Um, the second interesting thing is that it can actually learn from distributed systems. So um, an AI system that's in my office and an AI system that's in your office can be in touch with each other and can learn from each other's experiences, which means that you know, in a matter of days, they could collect 100,000 years of, of data, right? Because each... 100,000 years of data. For example, right, if you had enough nodes of, of the system do, working in parallel, each system would be generating, you know, for example, in a couple of days, a few, you know, a, f- a few days worth of data. If you have 10,000 nodes or 100,000 nodes, then for sure in one day you can get 100,000 <laughs> days of data. And so, you know, it, it scales up, whereas human learning is limited to my eyes and my ears and, and what I physically experience. Uh, that's not the case with, with artificial intelligence. So I think those are the strengths. But the weaknesses have until now been that it's not very good at dealing with ambiguity. So um, if you put it in a situation that it hasn't seen before, it's generally very bad at, at working. It's also been limited by the number of eyes and ears that are connected to it. So it used to be, you know, un- until recently, very recently, computers were kind of limited to their own physical hardware. Or if they were web connected, they were limited to being connected to a bunch of other screens around the world. But as we have more and more cameras connected to the network, as we have more sensors, as we have more smart watches on our bodies, and we have payment platforms that are connect, collecting data, all of this stuff gets connected into the same systems. So the number of eyes and ears and the, num- and the ability of it to deal with ambiguity has been going up recently. So all of a sudden, you know, what, we'll get to a point where those things are good enough or as good as, better than kind of the human level of ability. To Is there an example you can give to kind of illustrate that, that evolution or that switch mm-hmm. from kind of dumb AI to smarter AI? Let's take taxes as one example of that. Right now, taxes, generally, we, we go to accountants to help us with our taxes. And the reason that we, we don't really rely on our computers for that, except in very simple situations, is because we don't think that computers will understand our complexities or our special needs, right? Like, I went to such and such restaurant or I donated such and such charity, and you don't know what those are as a computer, so I have to explain it to you. 
But we're starting to see that, one, computers are building much better you know, language models and financial models and uh, understanding of all of the, the situations around the world. They can also l- learn from your tag data and help me uh, interpret like, what, my, what my bills and taxes have been. So, so it used to be very rule-based, you know, that we would tell the computer, okay, like if you see, you know, a restaurant type of transaction, then categorize it as, as, as meals. But then the robot still doesn't know, should it categorize that as a business expense or, or a personal expense? But over time, we're seeing accountants being, you know, using these computerized systems to label all their data, to train all their systems. And now um, computer scientists are, are saying, oh, well, we have now all of these labeled forms where we see everybody's transactions and we see the types of categorizations that, that we've had. And basically, similar to the cat identifying cats, we're now starting to identify all the different like types of, or categories of expenditures or the different categories of income. As we get really, really good at that, uh, which we're already getting a lot better at, we can then start to train models that do that passively. So they're connected to your credit card, they're connected to your bank account, and they auto-generate these systems for you. They also have a strength that a human accountant doesn't have, which is generally human accountants can only spend so much time keeping up to date with the current tax code around the world. Like there's there's changes every single minute and there's all these different uh, loopholes and there's all these different exceptions and there's all these different ways that we can file our taxes. And accountants can generally either spend their time doing people's taxes or learning about the new tax code. They hardly can do both. But computers don't have a problem with, with doing things in parallel. And so... Uh, all of a sudden... They can walk and chew gum. Exactly. <laughs> so that's just one example. But I think similar with, with legal, similar with journalism, <laughs> unfortunately oh, for God. you. <laughs> similar with a lot of other things. I think uh, my job is definitely going to be replaced, right? Investments is something that computers should do much, be- much, much better than me. So all of us are just going to be sitting kind of on a chase lounge eating grapes and telling computers what to do? <laughs> More or less, yeah. I mean, I'm looking forward to that day. <laughs> well, I guess that's a, not to joke about it, but I think that's yeah. the the kind of, this is where people get a bit uncomfortable. Look, well, here's the thing. I think that the that human endeavor, I mean, this is maybe more of a philosophical question than anything, but I think human endeavor is much more valuable uh, and, and spent much better on things that uh, are really much more generative of new knowledge than the execution of tasks. I think we should spend our time studying philosophy, studying medicine, studying the human body, studying uh, exploring the universe, exploring the ocean. Like this, These are the types of things that humans are very, very good at. And that it's impossible for a computer to be able to to do as well as we do, generate poetry, to generate language. Like these are things where they really touch kind of like the the core of what it means to be human. Unfortunately, I don't believe that that you know doing a repetitive task over and over again is like kind of the the optimum state of existence for for us. Not to say that you know hard work isn't valuable. Of course, like I think people around the world are striving very difficult you know for for really meaningful tasks every day, but. Until we can kind of liberate the the hands of people, that's the only way that we can kind of turn on the, the eyes and the brains and the ears of, of everybody and take the energy to, so to learn new things. If we ultimately are heading to a place where we are all liberated to live, you know, a different or better type of life, what do we do in the meantime? So, you know, you had Bill Gates recently talking about taxing the robots, or at least the robots that take human jobs, and therefore all of a sudden you don't have that tax revenue that pays for hospitals and bridges and roads, et cetera. Is that the answer? Or, you know, the other idea that people, especially around here, talk about is this universal basic income of everybody gets X amount of money per year because we're all going to be out of work and you still need to 
pay for stuff. You still need to kind of support yourself. I hesitate to comment on on this too much because the truth is I'm not an economist and I'm not a sociologist. I'm a technologist and I'm focused on technology. And I think it's it's too bad that you know most of the technologists feel like they can dictate policy, uh, and most policy is dictated by people who don't understand policy. But um, I think that that shouldn't be my job to dictate, and it shouldn't be the job of technologists to dictate. I think there sh- there needs to be kind of centralized efforts by policymakers to really study and understand the effects of the technology, and then design systems around that. I don't think that as technologists we have the right to tell other people how to live. Um, I think our job is to build things, and we're building things every day. And that there's people who are really highly trained and have a lot more knowledge and learning than we do to go and build uh, systems for uh, how society should live, how education should be done, how healthcare should be run, how taxes should be decided. Do, um, do, do you think there is enough overlap between the politicians, the policymakers, and technologists? Because, you know, it's kind of... If it feels a bit like, oh, that's his job. Oh, no, that's his job. And mm-hmm. there's no kind of integration of that approach. And all of a sudden, we're going to get to a place that could be p- pretty uncomfortable. There definitely isn't. <laughs> but I think that this is, you know, this is the same in many fields, right? I think if we look at the way healthcare is governed, or if we look at the way that education is governed, typically, it's, you know, the decisions always aren't made by people who are from those those industries. And so, it's not necessarily optimized. So, you know, who knows? Maybe we'll build AI for government and that'll take, <laughs> take, you know, take, you know, help, help with some of that problem as well. But joking aside, I think there's a long way to go from a policy perspective. And I think with every kind of drastic change in, in technology or with human development, policy needs to kind of catch up. And I think we, we've seen over and over again the revolutions of technology that actually create a lot of suffering at first before they're actually adopted effectively. And so I think it's the job of everybody to, to be involved in that process and be active in that process. But I, I really believe in the idea that kind of experts need to make the decisions, not it shouldn't be done by popular vote. <laughs> right. You see so much of this technology. Is there anyone in particular you think we should be, we should be expecting to see soon that is going to kind of make people sit up and be like, oh my gosh, I didn't know we could do that. I think definitely driverless cars is bringing a lot of attention uh, from people around the world. This is something that we thought, you know, was if you asked somebody five years ago, how far is it? People would say 50 years. (laughs) Uh, If you ask somebody today, you know, most people will say probably five to 10 years. And I personally believe it's even shorter, maybe one, two years um, for for certain kind of limited contexts. But the first use cases are mostly going to be commercial or industrial. And so we're not really going to see them as consumers in our day-to-day lives. One example is, you know, we invested in a company that takes sensor data from hundreds of thousands of different, you know, water treatment plants and then uses that to optimize, you know, the way the valves are controlled, uses it to optimize the way the pumps are run. And that's something that as a consumer we'll probably never really see, but we'll gain the benefits from, you know, the cost of water will will drop 20-30%, the efficiency of all of these plants will will go up a lot. Uh, similarly, you know, we've invested in in companies that are building construction-related tools or, or agriculture-related tools. And, like, we won't necessarily experience the first-hand gains. They won't be in our day-to-day lives. There won't be a robot walking around our office probably anytime soon. But it's going to influence kind of human society. And uh, construction robots presumably wouldn't catcall when a nice woman walks by. Yeah, I mean, hopefully, we, you know, they don't, they don't learn that behavior. But there are ex- interesting examples of computers learning, you know, really bad behavior from the people that... Like Microsoft's chatbot? Exactly, like the chatbot is one example, right? Like, you know... It, so how long did it take two days for, yeah, for a, the chatbot <laughs> to be taught to be racist exactly, and everything yeah. else? We don't see the biases that are in the world around us because we're 
kind of shielded from them or we're kind of we focus on the things that are interesting to us. But robots see everything, right? They're like, like a child with a sponge. You know, you say a bad word in front of them a few times and they'll replicate it. So um, I think, you know, we need to be very careful around what types of things we train our systems on and then observe how they're making decisions. And then, uh, and that's actually a huge field of research now in AI is we see computers making pretty good decisions, but we don't often know why they're making those decisions. So there's a lot of people who are actually trying to dissect AI systems and see how did you come to that result? Like, I agree with your result, but how did you get there so that, you know, I make sure you're not doing it the wrong way? Like, I think there was one example where there was an AI system that was identifying cats or identifying dogs or something. It was doing it pretty accurately. And so uh, everybody thought, well, you know, this is a great AI system. But after they dug a little bit deeper into it, which took a lot of energy and time, they found that actually it was identifying fur. And anytime it identified fur, it thought it was a dog. And so if you gave it a horse or if you gave it some, some other animal that had fur that looked kind of similar or shaggy or, or a me, carpet. me in a fur coat. Yeah, or a fur coat or a carpet. It would say, oh, this is a dog. So basically, you know, it wasn't really looking at the dog. It was just looking at the fur. It was looking at, you know, like the, the toe of the dog or something. Some small aspect that we don't think, we don't associate as the essence of a dog. <laughs> but somehow, you know, that's the signal that they picked up on. And so we need to be very conscious of how computers are making these decisions, what they're looking at, and then try to train it uh, against that. So there's people who are building what they call adversarial systems, which is like they'll, get, they'll train uh, a, a system with hundreds of thousands of pictures of dogs, and then they'll cover, for example, the nose of all the dogs. If they say, oh, the computer's identifying the dog by the so nose. So they're creating systems to try to trick them or to, to trick make it harder. To right. make it harder. So it'll, it'll, you know, the AI system, for example, recognized 100,000 dogs based on the nose. Then they get, feed it 100,000 pictures of dogs, but the nose is blocked by a tree or blocked by something. Uh, and then it's like, oh, well, I guess I have to develop new ways to recognize dogs. And then whatever it develops as its new way to recognize, like the tail, for example, then you block the tail and then you give it another 100,000 pictures of the dogs. And then it's like, oh, I guess I need to. So over time, we figure out what it's doing really well and we don't let it do that, uh, which allows it to get better and better. Wow. Fascinating. Uh, can I ask a favor? Sure. If anybody comes to you with an idea for a journo bot <laughs> just give it a pass <laughs> i'll make sure to you know send them to you guys <laughs> so that's it for the first episode of danny in the valley the sunday times new tech podcast i'd like to thank saman farid for taking the time and if you like what you hear check back every week we'll have a new conversation with someone interesting and you can also, of course, read my stuff every Sunday in the newspaper. Uh, that is, of course, until I, too, am replaced by a robot. Thanks a lot. Bye. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.